0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the European VC Podcast. I am David, and as usual, joined by my co-founder, Andreas. Today, we have Sarah Drinkwater with us. Sarah is the general partner at Common Magic, a pre-seed, seed, solo GP fund investing in and supporting founders building products with community at their core across Europe and the US. If you're listening in, love our show, do drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at eu.vc. Let's <laughs> Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values. Values.
1: United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The
0: nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. New, new beginnings. Let's start acting.
1: Acting. Acting.
0: This show is not investment advice,
1: and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. Sarah, we just spoke about how did we come to get to know each other, and then we mentioned a couple of names and said, maybe was it this or this or that. It wasn't. I actually found out in the meantime that it was from one of my spammy LinkedIn posts, so that's actually where we go back. Oh, Um, that's nice. So that's our backstory, but, but, but Sarah, tell us, how did, uh, how did you come into venture? How did Common Magic come to happen?
2: Yeah, I kind of came into technology and venture backwards by accident. I'm a long-term operator in early stage European tech. I've been working in Europe in tech for the last 15 years. And I first came into startups because I used to be a journalist. I wrote a blog that was kind of popular at the time. And a startup founder emailed my blog and asked me to do some work for him. This is like 2008. Um, I had to Google the word startup. Didn't know what it was at the time. And then from that job and from subsequent jobs, you know, I was at Google for a long time. I ran a space for entrepreneurs. I got to know many VCs through those jobs. And I think for a long time in Europe, because the profile of many VCs was very finance-based, you know, they had MBAs, a very particular kind of person. That's not my background. That's not my skill set. And so I came to angel investing really because I was surrounded by founders building interesting things. And so eventually, if you're surrounded by enough founders and you're looking at your bank balance and you're falling in love with their ideas, you're going to start thinking, oh, I should do this myself and start angel investing. And then with the fund, it was kind of a confluence of factors in that I ended up building a thesis by accident. I have a particular specialism around community building. The more I angel invested, the more I saw that that focus was appealing to founders. The more I realized there was a space in Europe and and in this part of the world for the thing I do best, which is really... Pre-seed and seed investing, not leading, but taking a particular place on the cap table where I help operationally with one thing, which is building that community strategy, thinking through the right first hire, thinking through metrics and helping you build narrative for your company. And so just on first close in May, I made my first three investments and we are off to the races.
1: <laughs> that is so cool. cool. Let me just ask you one thing and that is, how does one end up having a sp- specialization in community, meaning which route through, you've got a Google background, through Google does one take to end up with that? And you're, you're also a journalist. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see how that puzzle fits.
2: I tend to think that community, people who build community well are kind of born, not made. It kind of is a particular way that you lean. I guess I think of community in the context of startups as, you know, you're building ecosystems around products. How do you help users connect to each other, connect to the product You know, but at the core of that is relationship building. At the core of that is trust. And so for me, I call myself a journalist, but before I came into early stage tech, I also worked in advertising. I ran a vintage clothing shop. I ran club nights. I did lots of things where the core theme was bringing people together. Like I just always liked doing that. And when I began working in early stage startups, I was the first non-technical hire three times in a row. My first three companies I joined, first woman, first non-tech hire. And I basically was charged with, we're building the product. Can you go and find us some customers? And so for me, when I say I'm a community builder, I basically build that for myself in that, you know, I was I was for those companies looking at the copy of how we talk about what we do. That relates to my journalism background clearly, but also like thinking through atypical mechanisms uh, to kind of find people that might like this product when the founders themselves didn't have that peer group. But, you know, the people in my network that are great community builders of all types, whether they're developer advocates or gamers or classic community builders, they tend to have a couple of things. you know. First of all, they have a strong affiliation with the thing they're building. In my case, I've worked a lot on discovery in cities. I, I love great dinners. I love great vintage shops. That's something I personally have and will always have. I just love that. I like this neck scarf. You know, next scarf, you know, a bit of a thing. And secondly, you're good with you're good people. You can talk to anybody. Um, and I think not everyone has that. I think it took me a long time to learn that ability to talk to anybody and build trust anywhere is quite unusual in some ways. And so I think um I think when you're if you're a founder looking for an amazing hire in this space, it tends to be atypical profiles that thrive in community roles. There's no, there's no one route, I guess.
0: Could I ask you, Sarah? Because you shared the your journey into venture. Yeah. Um, but there's one small detail that you didn't share that I'm particularly interested in, which is the personal motivations of, you know, angel into VC, right? Was it about, you know, can I, you know, making a hobby. A full-time job was it about there's things i just cannot do that it really pisses me off so let me go and solve that what was what was the personal uh reasoning there
2: it's kind of everything i think a bunch of things happen at once um i love working with founders it just makes me really happy and i'm good at it and i think that you know when something makes you happy and it's needed by the you know like there's a nice flywheel happening there i think firstly i really liked working with founders. I didn't see people with my skill set working with founders in Europe in a venture type role. There were the, even as an angel, I still have quite a distinctive skill set. You know, when I moved back from the US, when I was living in, in America, I was tracking the rise of solo GPs and thinking, "Oh, that looks really fun." And it was pretty clear to me that, you know, I could spend a couple of years trying to break into the classic VC industry in Europe, or I could be bold, believe in myself, and build my own beautiful world over here. And so, I think for me, it wasn't particularly people are doing it wrong. I don't like it. It was far more like, oh, here's actually an opportunity that, that you, know, you know, I knew that I had a certain brand as a community builder that I could leverage. Um, I don't think I would have had the credibility to raise in a totally different sector. But then I think in general, you have to be thoughtful about where you fit in the market. So for me, it was, a, it was a combination of things of me being at the right life stage, of me having the right network around me, of me, you know, like I knew I could find the companies. And then it's a matter of can you fundraise? The answer to that is undetermined. Yeah, I've raised some of it. I haven't raised all of it. But you don't go into this knowing everything ahead of time. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fun.
0: And with that, on that note, we go into uh, asking you to share us a pivotal moment in your life and tell us how it shaped you today as an investor.
2: So when I was 20 weeks pregnant, um, I found out my son would have one hand. And this is quite a personal story, but I'm just going to tell you up front. I think um, for most people, they have three or four moments in their lives when the axis shifts. And normally, you're not lucky enough to know it ahead of time. Um, You know, normally you look back and you're like, wow, that changed me. And I think with my son, it really changed me because it was incredibly unexpected. Um, And at the time, it felt like a massive deal. And then, of course, my son comes out and he's a totally regular toddler that struggles to climb big walls. So it's not that big a deal. How that changed me is it kind of reminded me that the only constant is change. That was a big mantra when I was at Google. People said it the whole time. But it's true. The only thing that happens, the only constant ever in life is change. And what you control is your response to things. You cannot control the universe. All you can really control is how you think about stuff. You know, particularly at an early stage, that helps me a lot. You know, I, I tend to work with companies when, you know, really you're investing in people. The products they're building, nearly always the, the solution changes. And so I think really for me as an investor, something I think about a lot is being flexible but focused. You know, my goal is finding the best founders that are building products with community at the core. You know, my oldest investments now are five, six years in, so I don't have enough data to say this with certainty, but I haven't got any companies that, that if I'm thinking about my successful companies, and I've only had one company shut down so far, but in my portfolio as an angel, there are distinct companies that I look at and think it's going quite well. I can't think of any of them that have not had very long, hard periods. Um, you know, co-founder disputes, revenue dries up, things shift, really foundational hire leaves. And so I think i um, personal resilience really matters it matters to me and it matters in how i think about the companies i back um i don't think you can do this job without having a good sense of humor but also thinking about you know how do you thrive in hard times you just keep going
1: we should go to our take a stand section take a A a start So Sarah, let's get your take on Fred Destin's quote, which goes something along the lines of a founder turned VC who knows how to invest is probably the best VC you're ever going to get.
2: I mean, I don't disagree with it. I know I'm meant to be salty here, but I don't massively <laughs> disagree with it. I think um, I think it matters what kind of operator you were, right? For example, if you're coming out of Fang, as I did, and you've never worked at a very small company, you know sometimes the advice you give to founders is is seen through the lens of leaving a massive tech company in 2023 for me i spent the last four years of my time at google running a space for founders working with founders every single day so i had a bit of a different experience i don't tend to believe in absolutes ever that's the thing i'll push back on with fred is i think in general there's such a focus on absolutes you know we live in this very algorithmically controlled twitter world and I just don't think the world works in absolutes. I think there is so much grey everywhere. Um, what makes a great investor now? What makes a great investor four years ago? What makes a great investor in ten years' time? Those can be different profiles in different parts of the world. So I'm gonna. The thing I'll push back on is is the, is the absoluteness of that perspective that I just don't believe in.
0: Sarah, in your launch post on Medium, which to our listeners will of course put on the notes of this show and on the newsletter, you state something along the line, uh, lines of there's been a Camboon explosion of interest in community, but still very few playbooks on how to do it well. And I can attest that EOVC has this community side to it and You know, we've we've engaged in many, many conversations on how to build community, our view on how to build community. We've fucked it up over and over and over again. to be honest, (laughs) I guess we're not alone, right? But to be honest, there's some bodies of knowledge or areas of knowledge where you just have like a framework, a playbook or whatever that you can refer to. And I would agree very much with what would your quote saying, like, there's definitely not a playbook that I know of in community. So I'd love to use the next uh, the next part of our of our interview to talk with you about what is your playbook or how do you think about building of community. In other words, what is your theory of community?
2: You know, to your point, a lot of the information around community building is quite fragmented, right? So I always look at David Spinks and Bethany Crystal. They write about it a lot, but they're both in the US and have worked at larger companies. It's one of the reasons why I've tried to keep writing on my, my medium is I've realised a lot of the conversations I have in private are not things that are commonly accessible. And so that's why you have to keep sharing your thinking. You know, when we talk about community, the challenges are, you know, community ultimately is utility plus belonging. You know, utility as in the EUVC community serves me well and belonging as in the EUVC community is part of my identity. I want to build status. I want to build recognition for this, et cetera. You know, that's the golden formula for communities, utility and belonging. And every, every group seeking to build community is pursuing slightly different tactics to reach certain business goals. You know, in your case, it might be, okay, we want a certain percent to become, you know, to convert, to invest in the funds that we're backing. And so you have to work backwards to think, okay, how do we think about building trust? How do we think about connecting folks to each other? How do we influence and create the conditions for success in this community without owning it? Because then you get to a place of transaction where it's like, okay, it's very much like a a system where it feels more like broadcast than true community. I think there are loads of great case studies out there. If you look at Europe, you've had everything from Unity to Miro to Hugging Face that has leveraged communities to get big. It's just that we need to be sharing those stories more widely. And, you know, if, if I think about investing communities, I think about Stonks, who I'm quite obsessed with. And I think about the, you know, they have both a very strong content and broadcast brands. I think their newsletters are really good. But also many of the folks in my network that use Stonks talk to each other you know, Odin is kind of the same, and there's a lot of folks around Odin that kind of talk about it. And so I think um, if I think about my theory of community, which sounds quite grand compared <laughs> to the fragmented thoughts I'll string together for me now, I think you don't you don't own communities, you kind of work to influence them. I think all community work is a work in process, and that, you know, it's, it's that's why it can be so frustrating for tech folks, as tech folks often think through, you know, often it's like launch a product, assess the product, but with community, it's far more iterative. And I think so many of the things that I've done that have been highest value for me longer term have been starting really small. I spent three and a half years building the kind of Google Maps social layer from scratch, you know, just from just me in London to like a team of 50 around the world from kind of Tokyo to San Francisco, you know, hiring a a big global team. And that started with 10 people at dinner in London in 2011. And I'm lucky in that my last startup had been in a very similar space. So I I knew the right people to bring together for that particular first group. But for a company as big as Google, it was it was intimidating starting so small. You know, very different from rolling out a massive marketing campaign. So for every company seeking to build community, nearly always you'll have a group of folks in mind that'll be your, you know in the same way that EUVC probably started with your peer group. It started with people that you already knew that you were sharing deals with and talking to. The challenge comes when you extend beyond that group. So early on, it's about starting small, starting custom. And then it's thinking through the structures that you need to put in place to enable a much larger group. But I think David Sprinks has a great framework around this. Thinking through, you know, pre-pre seed stage, it's nearly always the the, the metric they use to assess the strength of a community is around product feedback. Is this thing working? Does it work as expected? Do you want it? Will you pay for it? And then later on, it becomes about engagement and then acquisition. And then later on, it becomes more about kind of success and storytelling. Like how do you how do you bring in your friends? How do you help build our brand for us without us spending money on it?
1: That was actually exactly the question I was about to ask you because I don't know how many, but a large percentage of especially maybe B2B SaaS or SaaS type products will have community angles to them at least. You see a lot of them and I I wonder how many of the founders, you know, how do you test the founder on whether they really understand what they mean when they write community? and say that this is a community-based model, blah, blah, blah. You know, how do you think through that and make sure that you get the right insight from the founders there?
2: Yeah, I think there's two things there. The first is that, um, you know, to your point, I actually do a lot of B2B. I think because my background is in consumer, and when I started out as an angel, I did do a lot of consumer checks. Probably about a quarter of my angel investment portfolio is B2C. But um, over time, I've learned, first of all, my skill set suits I'm intellectually quite curious. I have like bio, I have developer tools, et cetera. And secondly, I think funding and scaling a consumer company in Europe is very hard. And ultimately my goal is to make my fund as successful as it can be. So I have to be very thoughtful about the moment that we're in. And I think secondly, if I think about mistakes I made as an angel that I'm using in terms of my fund perspective, you know, typically I meet founders when they have a bad MVP, but they have some sign of community love. That can be anything from a WhatsApp group. They've been running dinner parties. They've been running meetups. And so I think, you know, when we think about SaaS, people still buy from people. You know, when you're selling to a business, you're still selling to a person. And actually, I can't talk about the last investment I made through the fund, but that is a SaaS company with a very strong community element where I was able to kind of really assess it early on by talking to their existing, the folks that had signed LOIs but are not yet paying for them. There was a very clear reason why they might want to be in conversation with each other around education, around the friction of of installing this particular tool. So when I think about community, I guess something I look for in founders is, do they want to build this perfect product in a separate room and then deploy it top-down on an unsuspecting audience? Or do they want to build something bottom-up, which is always my preference? Um, You know, if you're building a car, you're not going to start with building the whole car. You're going to start perhaps with a skateboard. And then you're going to put a stick on it and call it a scooter because ultimately customers care that the thing goes. They don't really care about the look of it. They care that it goes. And so I think that's a particular thing that I look for in founders is that agility of mindset. I think particularly in this capital environment where I tend to very often invest in founders that are raising a small first round to test assumptions, that money is not going to build them the whole car. It's going to build them a scooter. And so I want to know they can spend that money wisely and they can really start to build the engine that will, that will enable the success of the car longer term. But I'm still learning. I think if if I think about mistakes I've made in past angel investments, it really has been founders that are very precious about building something perfect and then releasing it to their, and they've learned over time, oh, actually, I should have really gone more bottom up. You know, people like to feel part of the journey. Um, I had a call this morning with one one of my angel investments. They're running their first ever meetup next week. They're a bio company called Briefly. And they're bringing together a group of machine learning biologists that they want to be the first earliest test group. You know, the fact that we spent half an hour walking through the flow of this first meeting to me is a great sign. They put a lot of thought and care into this. I think the people coming are going to have a really good experience.
0: You know, Andreas asked you about how do you, you know, in engaging with a founder, how do you look for that insight on community building? Let me ask you the very, very similar question, but from a different angle. Common challenges and pitfalls. (laughs) I guess you have some interesting data points there. Do you have any any tips and tricks of how can they be addressed or, or even avoided?
2: You know, first things first, not every company suits the community around it, right? So, like, the first acid test is, like, does do you need this? And I'm trying really hard to be on thesis. So if I don't think this justifies a community, I'm, I won't invest in it. But that's a decision for the founders to take. I think with any buzzword, you're going to get a lot of folks that think, oh, yeah, I'll open source this. Oh, yeah, I'll do this. Oh, open source is actually a ton of work. And like, you know, to to, to like... You can't just launch a product It takes an awful lot of work for it to launch wisely. So I think the first thing is understanding if it's necessary. I think the second thing is starting something you can't finish. I think lots of folks launch, you know, in the same way that folks launch a podcast and they can't keep up with the rigor that it takes to do that repeatedly over time. You know, you build a brand through doing something again and again and again. Like me, like I was talking to a DevRel person right before this call and he was telling me about an event he ran recently where two people turned up. I've had that happen to me so many times. It's quite funny. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's like, you, that's how you earn your stripes in that world is you have to have a terrible <laughs> event when nobody comes. I think not needing community, not keep not starting something that you don't really need yet. And I think also launching an ambitious, expensive plan before validating it. Like pretty much everything in this space is is built on trust. You can start really small, but it doesn't tend to need someone that can put a certain amount of time behind it. And something else I see, I see companies do is, is hire too early. Or hire someone that's a bit more junior than they want. You know, they bring on someone to do kind of social media posts and that person feels underutilized and doesn't have any impact. Like, you know, if the founder hasn't put deep time into thinking about, like, what does this mean for my business? How does it get me to my business goals? I think anyone that you hire that's going to be worth it is going to be appropriately, you know, it's a foundational go-to-market hire. So you should be thinking about the equity and the comp in that way. Not this person will run events for us because then you're going to get someone that's lovely but junior. And has a bad experience and makes
1: I'd love to ask you because there's always a bit of a um, fight between people that believe in community and the people that believe more in hardcore sales or hardcore marketing, performance marketing, that type of thing. How do you see that with teams and make sure that that there's, you know, a, a coherent mindset and balance between, you know, those three categories? Because I think community is kind of, you know, bringing marketing and, and sales together. But quite often you'll have an operational guy who's done marketing who definitely do not think that he needs to involve sales too much because he just wants to get his stuff out there. And then you've got the sales person that has a completely different mindset, but none of them really feel that they need to do too much together. And community really does require that everyone comes together to build this you know, cohesive unit.
2: I think it all comes back to motivations, right? And I think this is, you know, if I think about the number one killer of early stage startups, it's nearly always alignment. Like, it's not the customers hate you or you can't raise money, it's alignment. And I'm, what I mean by that is, are you building a thing that the market wants? Are you able to get your team together to actually, you know, like, can you move in the same direction? And I think um, there's a great case study that Twilio, I wrote a piece about this today on Medium actually. We can put the link in the show notes if that's useful. But Twilio did some good work to align sales and DevRel to build shared goals. Because I think to your point, you know, typically the companies I work with are not ready to have a full-time marketing hire. You know, marketing is nearly always something that, that can be a subsector under community at my stage of company. But over time, yeah, you want to think about building the function. I also think with sales, um, you know, community done well is really about both top of the funnel, but also retention, engagement and customer success. It's just we don't frame it like that. And I like I've never worked in sales. I think I have really been selling full-time for the last 25 years. But I, I something about that frame, maybe it's the European in me, but I resist that term. But ultimately, if you're hiring and building a smart community team, they should know what the ultimate goal is. And often the ultimate goal is sales. You cannot deny that. I think it's I think it's really about folks understanding what we're here to do. If the goal is to help our to help, for example, in Event Stores case, um, you know, to help customers find the perfect database for their needs part of that is selling to them part of that is is dealing with the customer complaints part of that is you know that's that's why we're building a community around this thing is to to fuel adoption and engagement around the product i hear what you're saying i think partly it comes back to clarity internally alignment internally appropriate goal setting internally and also i think there's so many weird political tensions between devrel community marketing i don't understand it so weird to me Um, But it does exist. It's always been a problem. I think partly it comes back to the kind of profiles that you find that do these kind of things. But I think some of that's kind of going away, I hope.
1: Yeah, and comment, Ben, also. I'd love to ask you, where does community live in a company? Does it live in sales or does it live in marketing or does it live in something in between?
2: It depends on the company. I actually, as I said in my Medium post that went live today, um, I think Mattis I've always fought to report to product and engineering for lots of reasons. Like When I was a first-hand operator, um, I used to report to CEOs or heads of products. That was just always my preference for my team because I think the stages that I work at tends to be about product feedback and influencing product feedback well. For the companies that I work with, there's a vast difference depending on the type of company. So in some cases, CEO, just because the teams are small enough. In other cases, it really sits under growth more generally. And growth is quite a nice catch-all term where sales marketing community growth, that's quite nice to me. In other cases, particularly with developer advocacy teams, product it makes sense. There's not enough spoken out loud about org chart structures and what they imply. Now, one of the classic community go to markets out there always sat under marketing. Um, I actually have a screenshot of their of their community org chart at one point in time because I was so interested in, in, I'm quite interested in this question of like where stuff sits. But, you know, I think, at the stage that you and I both work at, it really is about having it inside the company and having it having it owned by somebody, having metrics that are understood that are legible. But it depends.
1: Yeah, at the very early stage, it lives with the founders.
2: Yeah, always, pretty much always. And then I think the challenge becomes founders ultimately like it because nearly always they're talking to people they used to work with, or they, you know, they're talking to folks that are in their network. And I think um, you know, every founder has to give away their Legos at distinct points in time. And actually, this is the job that I've seen founders struggle to let go of sometimes. Because they're like, oh, but I love doing this. Oh, but I haven't got time anymore. And I've got to hire someone to give it to. Because it feels good. You know, when it goes well, it feels quite good.
0: Uh, Sarah, we're running a a bit over time here. But I can't take us to the next section without first asking you something which is on this topic of like emerging trends or innovations or whatever, you know, and I think it goes without saying, you know, many communities live inside of Slack. And so without Slack, we would live in a completely different world. But now there's also this funny thing called DAOs (laughs) as an example for the different structures and governance of communities. I am by no means an expert in the topic, very far from it. So I'd love to ask your your take on, on, you know, emerging trends and innovations, specifically DAOs. In, in with yeah. this lens of community building and building companies with community at, at its core?
2: So I spent a lot of 2021 and early 2022 very deep in DAOs, basically contributing in DAOs full-time. I think DAOs are decentralized autonomous organizations, term coined by Vitalik, often thought of as related to kind of crypto, Web3, the last, the last vogue of crypto before you kind of dived into the bear market. You know, my interest is always in you know, for me, I came into technology in my late 20s. And part of the reason I moved industry um, from publishing was the freedom and the autonomy of technology. I think we forget this the whole time. Many folks, many friends I have who've only ever worked in tech, don't understand when I talk about this. But, you know, when I used to have reviews, when I was a journalist, my boss would always be like, you've got too many ideas, and you share them too much, and you should wait your turn. And in startups, it was the first time that I didn't have to do that. And I keep thinking about like, when I think about DAOs, These are ultimately groups of people coming together around a mission, a goal, an identity around building a thing together, where they basically have a leaderless movement, where they have a shared bank account and they get stuff done. That is the idea. I think I'm still a very big believer in DAOs, but I think a lot of the groups that flourished as DAOs in the first wave, i.e. 2021, 2022, have struggled to thrive longer term. I think we're very new to building the muscle of, of group accountability we like having a boss sometimes it's quite relaxing having a boss in some ways as i'm learning as a solo gp every morning <laughs> I'm like okay i'm a boss i have gotta give myself
1: like i have to ask you sarah because now you said it yourself as a solo gp you're all about community how do you think about community building as a gp then um, because one of the firms that i really love is cavalry because they've got 250 uh, LPs behind them. They are very explicit about, well, their name is Cavalry. That's because you get a Cavalry behind you when you get their investment. How does that, turn, you know, are you doing something similar to that? I know that it's still early days. So obviously, there's still more to be unpacked there. Uh, but I'm so curious to hear.
2: I think yes and no. So on the one hand, I, I'm, I, I very much work in a very networked kind of way. I think, I think every successful solo GP has to or aspires to, in my case, given I'm brand new, in that I have distinct folks that I like to invest with. There are areas where I'm not able to diligence and I have folks I particularly go to. Like there are very particular scenes I'm part of where that's where I find deals, that's where I see deals, that's how I get to know people. I think with my LP base, um, you know, I've tried a bunch of things so far, um, at very small scale because it's just me. And I think this is something I'm thinking about the whole time. So, for example, I ran a hackathon in April this year in London, you know, partly as a way of of following a personal rabbit hole. You know, I was really interested at the time, I still am, in kind of what Gen AI means for people like me who are not that technical, like how fast can we build stuff? Um, So I ended up running a hackathon at quite short notice. We put it together in five weeks, ran it with a friend, Victoria Stornova, who used to be a full-time hackathon runner, so old friend. You know, we got sponsorship from kind of Amazon, DeepMind, OpenAI, Faculty AI, Stability AI, all the AIs, the Royal Academy of Engineering, British Medical Journal. We got 150 builders to come together. We ended up, you know, we ran it basically for the community. But for me, it was also experimenting, okay, you know, to my mind, if I think about communities I've been in that have been quite meaningful, this was a bit of a harmonica. And then we had three days of folks coming together, building stuff together, really fun. And now we have a WhatsApp group that's popping, but less, you know, like we're doing less in person. And so I guess when I think about effective community building as a solo GP, it's two levels. One level is my day-to-day, like who am I constantly in flow with? Who am I constantly talking to? And then the second level, particularly with some of my GPs who are not based in Europe, it's like, okay, they wanna feel part of this movement. They wanna feel part of my story and my journey. And it's up to me to have great communication, but also to ask them for help, You know, for, to be very thoughtful about their time. And so I have to be honest and say, I'm still building that out. But I very much believe that anything great happens and is built by a village that I'm not, this is not about, you know, me solo. It's about me solo day to day, but at the same time, it's like my success rests on other people all the time. And I think Cavalry is a great example. There are so many great collectives in the US, but I also don't want to pretend that I'm, that I have a fully built up plan already because I don't. <laughs> a lot of this is very emergent because it's the first, What I've, I did my first close three months ago now.
0: And now it's time for our shout out segment. <laughs> Sarah, I'd like to ask you to give a shout out to a co-investor, Angel or LP, for being awesome. And of course, do share the story behind that awesomeness with us.
2: I think I'm gonna pick Atomico because they were the first big yes that they got for the fund. Um, you know, I first got to know them in early 2010s. They were the investor in state a company that I worked for at the time. It was an early opinion social network. Didn't work out, but that's how I got to know them. And then when I ran campus, Nicholas and team, the company was a lot Atomico was a lot smaller then but they were always just real supporters of me and of campus as, a, as something that was for the community. I joined their angel program via Sophia Bents in 2020. And again, they kept inviting me back. It, they really helped me build my confidence that I could do this full time. Um, you know, as an angel on their program, you get to write memos, And I really got in the flow of, you know, it was very much like a training program in some ways and it helped me get better at what I was doing. And then when I had the idea for the fund, I took it to 10 people that I trusted. Um, And they were one of them. And they were very much like the foundational commitment that made me go ahead and do this full time. So I think they've always been great. Um, I have a lot of trust with various people there. And, you know, we invest in quite different stages, but I think at the same time, they were just a really foundational yes for me early in my journey of building Common Magic.
1: Sarah, your life has been quite a journey. And I am very, very curious to hear what your 10 years you know, your biggest learnings from those 10 years has
2: been. I guess two things. If I look back at what I was doing 10 years ago, I wouldn't recognize my life now. It's like I d- I'm not. I'm not a big planner. I think I tend to fall in love with things and go down rabbit holes and pursue it. I think the first thing I've learned is nothing works unless you do. Like ultimately, like, you know, I would love to say that I've fallen by accident into lots of, I would love to say that's true, but no, I've had to work for lots of things. That's good. You know, I think the last 10 years has really taught me the importance of working. But also, I've really learned the importance of serendipity and curiosity and basically meeting interesting people, you know, building relationships that work for the long term. I think Tomiko is a great example of that. That was, you know, 12 years from, well, about 10 years from our first meeting to them giving me any money at all because that wasn't the goal of our our relationship early on. And that's something that I found interesting on the fundraise trail is I'm raising now, meeting folks for the first time now. Asking for money right away, which doesn't feel great. My preference would be to get to know <laughs> folks first. Both sides, I'm sure.
1: I think a comrade friend of ours, Anthony Dannen from coca he taught me the word manufactured serendipity, which I think is yes. so beautiful. Yes, I like that. Together, yeah. it really sounds great. <laughs> nice <laughs> concept there. How do you, how do you think about, about that point around manufactured serendipity of, of designing that into your life as a VC? And do you kind of, you said you're not a big planner, but we're all planning ahead after all. So so how do you make sure that you manufacture that for yourself?
2: Yeah, I think two things. Firstly, I don't like having lots of meetings. I, like I don't like having a week where I know what I'm gonna be doing ahead of time for a couple of reasons. I think, you know, obviously at least half the week always is planned ahead, you schedule, et cetera. But I don't like when I, you know, for example, one of the reasons why I moved on from a particular job before is I was I was realizing I had 40 hours a week of meetings every single week. Jesus. And I had no space to think. I had no space to read articles. I had no space to meet new people. And if I've learned one thing, so for example, it might be VC summer, but I've signed two different things this month. And in both cases, there were things that all of a sudden became very hot. And I happened to be able to jump on them at the right time and make space to do the kind of diligence that I like to do to, you know, to, to kind of really give time and thought and care to these things. And I think the second thing is, you know, there are a lot of people that I trust to introduce me to anybody. And there's lots of, you know, I, I do I do, do an awful of intro calls. Like if I think about manufacturing serendipity, it's about being open-minded always. I think what's interesting about venture is, you know, the timeframes are so long. You don't have any idea how things are going to pan out, you know, and you meet so many people the founders you work with, all of your co-investors, all the early hires at your companies. You know, I'm now seeing the first wave of people that are founders that have left companies I've already funded. You know, they joined as like an early financial hire in 2020, and they're now leaving to do their own thing. So I think, it, I think it's really about understanding all of this work compounds in the long term, but not expecting in the short term any goals. You know, I, I think you always know when you're having a first meeting with someone who's very transactional because they come into it wanting to get stuff out of you. It doesn't feel good. If you go into it feeling more open-minded about things then you know benefits over time i guess
1: i couldn't agree more sarah though i always say about vc that in in the end and this is me being a bit cynical maybe in the end we we broker connections right we broker our network and, and and connections between people so in that sense we're amazing connectors also at the individual level when we meet. But it's also why you'll experience VCs, you know, being transactional up until the point they realize that there's a match here. Am I right in saying that you 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 do recognize that because we we could spend all day long in meetings, right? We could be talking to people all day long, especially because right now VC is so sexy and everyone wants to be a VC and so on. In the end, it's not at all, and it's a fucking grind, and you're begging for money all the time, right? So it's not really that sexy, but everyone <laughs> thinks it is. I know, it's so confusing everyone- <laughs> we
2: it sexy. We make it exactly. sexy. Just because exactly. we make it sexy, exactly. does not mean it's Exactly.
0: Easy. I like that. The,
2: the, but the way that I think about it is like it's like dating. Not every date you go on is going to be a smash hit, and maybe if you're lucky, but I think I have loads of intro calls where it's very clear, in the first, also with founders too. It's clear in the first five minutes, we are not a fit. It doesn't mean they're a bad founder or that – I'm a bad VC. It just means that we're not a fit. And, um, you know, there are particular kinds of founder profiles that I love and lean to. And there are certain kinds of founders that just don't like me. And that's fine. I think it really is about fit. And, you know, to your point, sometimes you meet folks and it becomes very clear there's a match. It becomes very clear there's an overlap. You know, you build your circle around you of folks you think are doing interesting things that you can trust. And it's not that you're not going to work with other people. It's just that you might have a bit less trust with other people outside that group.
1: And when you meet the right ones, then
2: common magic arises. I think that's it, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the name that I chose for the fund was very much about honoring common labor, right? About honoring things groups can do that others can't. And so I think to your point, like if I think about, you know, I'm thinking about deals I did as an angel where every person in the cap table knows each other really well. And of course, there's a flip side there where it becomes groupthink and that's not good. But at the same time, you know, like there's a particular founder that I'm working with right now that's really struggling just the company is, is having a hard time and the fact that I know his lead very well and we can talk about it too that helps me a lot because we can tag team and support the founder in the right way and kind of and you know me and the lead bring very different things to that perspective and that, that I think hopefully that's beneficial for the founder overall
0: and Sarah now it's time for the quickfire round and it's the bit where we ask you three quick answer questions <laughs> and now the quickfire fire, quickfire quickfire, 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 quickfire. What advice would you give your 10 year younger self?
2: Keep going and have fun.
1: What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are fundraising?
2: Build a story that makes sense that you absolutely believe in.
0: What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture?
2: Sometimes it really is about intuition and gut feel versus numbers.
0: All right, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode of the European VC Podcast, drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at EUVC. I am David, and I was joined by my co-host Andreas, welcoming Sarah from Common Magic. Thank you for tuning in today, and we can't wait to see you all out there.
1: Yes, down,
0: down, down. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values. Of values.
1: United and determined. We can serve as a model for other regions of the world.
0: The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. New, new beginnings. Let's start acting. Acting. acting.